Well, good morning, everyone. Such a blessing to see you and to fellowship and worship our awesome God. He is the Lord of all. We'll be in Genesis 15. As you're turning there, we do have an announcement. Uh, next week, we'll have our regularly scheduled communion uh, following the service. Is it next week or the week after? It could be the week after. Anyway, the first Sunday of the month, we have worship, uh, communion. And in two weeks' time, so Sunday week, we are having a barbecue following the service. So I think an email was sent out to people, um, and that's seven. Oh, oh really? Right, right, okay. So in two weeks' time. You see, the person who's doing the announcement should actually know what they're talking about. That's a problem. Yeah, so... Next week. I thought it was seven. Because today's the 24th, right? You guys know better than me what's going on. That's awesome. So in two weeks' time, we are having both communion and the barbecue. So stick around for that. It'll be awesome. Uh, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you know what's going on, that you are awesome, that you are perfect in all your ways, and we just worship you, Lord. You are glorious. You are so good. You're so gracious to us and merciful, and thank you for this fellowship that we can have with one another, that we can draw near to you in faith, that we can hear your voice, that you speak to our hearts, and you, you say what we need to hear. You tell us what we need to know, and you lead us in your righteous ways, and so Pray, Lord, as we open your word, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would fill us with your joy, and just in awe of how awesome and great you are. In Jesus' name, amen. We all have expectations. We have things that we believe should happen or will happen, and we get disappointed or annoyed or um, surprised when our expectations are not met. Sometimes our expectations are exceeded, and we're glad when that happens, but sometimes they aren't. Uh, in 2 Kings 5, we're introduced to Naaman the Syrian who had an expectation that he could be healed of his leprosy. And uh, he was a leper. It's an incurable disease. And he sent a message to the king in Israel saying, I'm coming to be healed of my leprosy. And the king of Israel tore his clothes. And he's like, who am I, God, that I can heal this incurable disease? He's trying to start a war. And Elisha, the prophet, says, send him over. We'll show him that there's a prophet in Israel. Naaman goes to Elisha in Samaria, expecting to be healed of his leprosy. And he goes all that way, and the prophet doesn't even come to his door. He sends the servant to the door and says, hey, Naaman, go to the Jordan, dip seven times, and you'll be healed. You'll be clean. And he was furious. He's like, I expected that man to come out, wave his hand, say some words, and heal me of the leprosy. But... And, and the Jordan, aren't there better rivers in, Samar in, in Syria than here? And he was about to leave in a rage when his servant said, what do you have to lose? Shouldn't you just do it? And he went and dipped seven times in the Jordan and was cleansed. His flesh was restored and the healing of Naaman, it revealed to him that there is one God. There is only one God, the God of Israel, and he worshiped him. Now, what's remarkable about Naaman's cleansing is why he went to Samaria at all. He went because of the word of a young Hebrew servant girl who lived in his house, who served him. She was not embittered towards God because she had been made a slave, because likely her parents had been killed or her city destroyed. God was still God. 
And she said, would to God that my master would go to Samaria because he could be healed of his leprosy there. And so she demonstrated faith in God to believe that God would heal the Syrian general. And he demonstrated faith in God to go and dip seven times in the Jordan. And I wonder, are we like that little girl, that slave girl who expected God to miraculously heal a Syrian general? Or are we like the king of Israel who's tearing his clothes, fearing the worst, plagued with unbelief? See, faith expects God to be God, that God is powerful, that God, there's an expectation that he is going to move. When we sing, he is working here. He is moving in our midst. We say that because we believe it, but we can also doubt that and wonder, where is God when I'm hurting? Now, Abram, he's a man who didn't just believe in God or believe that God exists. He believed God. He believed what God said to him who led him to Canaan, who gave him victory over his enemies and made a covenant with him, something we're going to learn about today. So Genesis 15, verse one. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Now our passage starts with after these things. So this is directly following the previous chapter and that's Abram's pursuit and defeat of Kedalaomer and the other three kings by his 300 servants, 318 servants and his allies. They recovered Lot, his nephew, and all their goods. And Abram, as he's returning from the slaughter of the kings, he's met by two kings, the king of Sodom, whose people he saved, and the, and the king of Salem and the high priest of God, Melchizedek. And Abram gave tithes of everything he received to Melchizedek. And you refuse to take anything from the king of Sodom. He's like, lest you say you've made me rich. And after this victory, that's after these things, now God speaks to Abram in a vision. His word of the Lord comes to him. He says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Now, when God tells people not to be afraid, what are they? Usually afraid, right? Because God knows that they're afraid. And some of us don't like to admit we're ever afraid, but yes, we are afraid at times. And God spoke to him. He enjoyed this miraculous victory, but there was also a real threat of retribution. He understood that he had just defeated four kings when their people heard of all that, that he had gone up to Dan and Hobah, that they could pursue him. They could spoil him. He's living in a tent. It's not strong defenses, but God spoke to him. Don't be afraid. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. So shields, it's something that you would carry into battle. You see the danger and you place it between yourself and the danger. But see God, he, he protects us from what we cannot even see, what we don't even know. He is our shield. He is living. His eyes are everywhere. He sees all things. And we can expect that he will be strong on behalf of those who know him and seek him. You have faith when you're at the cricket match or at the training and the ball goes into the netting. You don't have to flinch because you trust that that netting is going to hold. If you have a bulletproof vest, you'll wear it into the battle, believing that if a bullet comes, it will protect me from harm. And my Vital organs will be protected. And God said, I am your exceedingly great 
reward. Have you ever had buyer's remorse? Like, ah, I didn't get a very good deal, or someone tells you didn't get a good deal, or you wish you would have bought something, but you didn't. Well, perhaps Abram had a bit of giver's remorse, not buyer's remorse, but he had been given, offered to him as a reward, all the goods of Sodom. And he said, I've already raised my hand to God. I'm not receiving anything from your hand. Not even a sandal strap will I take from you. And he gave it all away. And so God's like, I am your reward. I'm the one you rejoice and have satisfaction in. Far greater than the spoils of war. The reward of God's presence, his favor, his deliverance, it's beyond price. It's like for your faith in God, Abram, God rewarded him with himself. Winning the lottery a billion times cannot compare to that. The presence of the living God with you, protecting you, guiding you. Continuing in verse 2. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, no one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Abram and Sarai, they were advanced in age They still remain childless. If we look back in the scriptures, chapter 12, God promised, I'm going to make of you, Abram, a great nation. It's like right on. Great nation. Amazing. Didn't have a child at that point. Chapter 13, your descendants will be innumerable as the dust of the earth. Still no descendant. Still not one heir. And he was no doubt pleased to have God as his shield and his reward. But he felt the lack of a child strongly. He, was, he, he knew that he wanted one, that they were unable to have one, it seemed. He was facing his inescapable impotence and his wife's barrenness. And they grieved over that. They wondered how this would happen after months and months and years of no conception. Wondering, well, how is God going to do this? What is, is his word true? Wondering. And Abram's like, Lord, you've given me no offspring. It seemed a great oversight by a God who knows and can do everything. Of course, God was fully aware of the fact that they did not have a child. Abram was also aware that the Lord is the one who gives conception because he says, you have not given me a child. So we recognize that God was the one who gives life. This is true whether you're a married couple unable to conceive or a single person who has an unexpected or unwanted pregnancy, that life, it's a gift from God. God gives life. Some people are gifted with singleness. Some people are gifted with a spouse. Some people are gifted with a child or children. Life is a gift from the Lord. And God provides a satisfaction in himself alone. So praise him for that. We are his, it's like, Better than having children is to be a child of God, to call him your father, and that being true, because he has redeemed us and adopted us out of his love for us, and that's eternal. Like even marriage, till death do we part. But our relationship with the Lord, it is unchanging and beautiful and perfect. Now, I don't know how much time passed between verses three and four. So the word of the Lord came to Abram, This one, Eliezer, shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. 
One observation that I've made of God throughout these passages is he makes these grand promises right up front, this massive promise, but he doesn't say when it's going to happen. He doesn't explain what Abram has to do or how or like when it's going to actually transpire. He doesn't give him all the details. He says, I'll make you a great nation. He doesn't say when or how, right? It's like Abram has this opportunity to believe God. As we see, as he walked with God over the passage of time, he had fellowship with God and God began to reveal more and more. And in himself, God gave him enough to take the next step of faith, to believe him. In knowing God, Abram found solid footing for faith without having all his questions answered. God had commanded, Abram, leave your country, leave your family, leave your people, go to the land that I'll show you. He didn't tell him where to go, but he led him and brought him into Canaan. Now we can make the mistake of demanding answers before we will go. Okay, well, you show me which country and then I'll go to that country. But Abram didn't do that. He said, leave without knowing where you're going. And he did. Now, can you imagine doing that? Leaving, not know, knowing where you're going. That's a, that is a step of faith, right? Trusting that God will bring you to that correct destination. And we can also make our faith contingent of God explaining himself when he's already spoken clearly in his word to us. So we have a clear directive, but we want an explanation before we will take a step of faith. Now, when we withhold our trust and faith in God until he explains or meets our demands, that is called unbelief. And that is abomination. That is evil and wickedness that we would not believe God when he is God. Verse five, then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. God brings Abram out of his tent. He says, look up, see all those stars. See if you can count them. That's how your descendants will be. So he gives him this challenge, right? Count the stars, Abram. Now, he could have seen thousands of stars with his naked eye in those days. Uh, There wouldn't be a lot of light pollution from cities or anything, and he could look up. And if you've ever gone into the night sky when it's nice and clear, and you've come out of a tent or um, a hotel, and you look up, or your car, it takes a little time for your eyes to adjust. And so you can start counting, like, all right, I'm going to actually try to count these stars. And you start at the horizon, you start counting this way, and then, okay, I'll stop there, and start going up and, but then you're actually, wait, I'm seeing more stars now than I did previously. So I have to start over and you start counting again. And the whole canopy is there. And it's like, all right, it's too much. It's too much for me to count. God's promise to Abram had not changed. His descendants would be as the dust of the earth. They would be as the stars in the sky that Abram could not count. And then telescopes come to the picture. I mean, man, what a game changer. It's like we can see thousands of stars with the naked eye, but now millions and billions of stars are visible with magnification. Abram did not just stubbornly say, I'm going to count those stars. He believed God. Even though they were beyond his comprehension to count, he believed him and God accounted it to him as righteousness. It's like when, when Abram had 
shook the dust off his sandals, when he went into the, his dirt floor tent, when he looked up at the sky, God was giving an illustration of how abundant his descendants would be when he didn't have one. And he believed him. This is the first time we see the word believed used in the Bible. This verse is quoted three times in the New Testament to show the fact that righteousness is imputed or credited to a person through faith in God. Not by the efforts of the flesh. Not because you've done something or paid something or offered something. It's simple belief in God. God accounts that as righteousness. Now the Jews imagine that once they received the law, that if they kept the law, they would be righteous. Well, the purpose of the law was to bring the knowledge of sin, to show them and lead them by the hand to a savior for forgiveness and cleansing. Why don't you turn please to Romans chapter four, starting in verse one. This is one of the passages that quote this Genesis passage in the New Testament. Romans 4, starting in verse 1. It says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So God credited Abram's belief in God as righteousness. I was thinking about um, accounting. And uh, when I would be a chaperone for like one of the boys field trips or go on a camp, I would be given a group of kids that were mine and I needed to watch them. I needed to account for them. And uh, I found counting heads to be the easy way. I would say, okay, these six kids are mine. One, two, three, four, five, six. As you're going through the mine, at uh, Bathurst, or if you're going to the park, you, you keep your eye on your six. And I may not, I may forget their names, but I'm like, I know who they are. All right, there's six of them because every kid has a head and you can just count them. It's easy, <laughs> right? Counting heads, six of them. And it's like, yep, they're all here. God looked at Abram. He sees his faith. He says, yep, he's mine. He's righteous like me. He accounted righteousness to him because he believed God. He's a sinner unworthy of acceptance, yet he was justified by faith. He was rendered righteous by trust in God. He looked at the stars and said, wow, God is going to do that. I believe what God has said. That he would make his descendants innumerable when he didn't have one yet. And what he didn't realize is God was not only speaking about the physical children that he would have, but the spiritual ones through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to believers in Galatians 3.29, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You know, when we sang that song, Father Abraham, and you're doing all those calisthenics and, and uh, movements, uh, to get out your wiggles in Sunday school, it's true in a spiritual sense, regardless of your ethnicity. Because we are children of Abraham by faith. He, was, he believed God. It was accounted to him as righteousness. We believe Christ. It is accounted to us as righteousness because Jesus is God, made flesh. Hundreds of years later, Moses told the Hebrews in Deuteronomy 14, 12, that they were the children of the Lord, their God. So generally as a people, they were children of God. 
Then the prophet spoke of God in Isaiah 63, 16. He says, doubtless you are our father, though Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from everlasting is your name. Then when Jesus comes, he blew everyone's minds when he referred to God as my father. So he's not speaking generally as a people. He's saying my father. And the Jews took exception at this. They said he is claiming to be God. He is claiming to have a relationship with God as an equal. Righteous standing, intimate relationship with God was not on offer under the law. Through faith in Christ, though, we're made one with him. We are members of his body. And he invites us into relationship with God as his adopted children. And when his disciples said, how should we pray? He says, our father who art in heaven. Right? He points to the relationship now that's possible through faith in him. That you can call God father. And it's real. It's true. Because we are children of faith. Heirs according to the promise. Pretty cool. Genesis 15 verse 7. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, if you've been observant, you've noticed that sometimes Lord or God is in all caps in your translation. And when it's in all caps, it's YHWH or the Tetragrammaton, as some pronounce as Jehovah or Yahweh. So it's like the proper name of God. And so it, it says Lord in one place or it says Lord, lowercase Lord, but God, all caps, that is pointing to Yahweh, God's name. And that name, uh, it's the pronunciation of it is not 100% known because the Jewish scribes removed the vowels to show reverence for God. Because even to this day, if you read Orthodox uh, writings, quite often there'll be dashes through the name. They will not say the name of God. It was called the name. Like God is so holy that even saying his name, you show reverence by omitting those letters. And uh, the, it's been defined as he he who will be is and has been, or he brings into existence whatever exists, or I am. He's the eternal, sovereign, self-existent, and almighty God. And God says, I am the Lord, 164 times in the Old Testament. So he says to do something, he says, I am the Lord. Like, this is my name. This is who I am. And I am who I am. He says, I am the one that brought you out of Ur. Like he says, how will I know I'm going to receive this land? Well, I brought you out of that land. God points to something he did in the past to show him that he will be faithful to do what he's promised in the future because he is self-existent. He is eternal. He does not change. So he says, Adonai Yahweh, how will I know I will inherit the land? There were a lot of people already in that land. Think if God said, I'm going to give you Tasmania as your inheritance. It's about 3.3 times larger than the 
modern-day land of Israel. Well, there's half a million people already living in Tasmania. Does anyone have the money to buy Tasmania, like the whole island? Would you be able to forcibly remove people who own land in Tasmania? No. And so God's saying, I'm giving you all this land from the Nile to the Euphrates, this whole area, much larger than what is the current holdings of the nation of Israel to this day. It would be an impossible thing to believe except God was saying it to you. That's the only way that it could be in the hardly possible is God said it. And though Abram knew God was Lord of all, he calls him Lord God. It's kind of like when we ask a contractor for a quote. Put that in writing, please. I would like to see evidence that you are going to follow through with your side of this bargain or what you've said you will do. There's a scope of work. I want the scope of work written out so that I know what you're saying. So I'm not, there's no confusion here. So that's what Abram's doing. It's not like I doubt your credentials. I don't, tell me your, uh, your license number because I think you're a fraud. That's not what he's doing here. He's saying, Lord God, how will I know this is going to come to pass? And so God's response, very odd, right? He says, get five animals. Three-year-old heifer, three-year-old female sheep, a three-year-old ram or a male sheep, turtle dove and a young pigeon in preparation for God to establish a covenant. And these were provided to cut a covenant, something that would be done in the ancient world when you had a binding agreement between two parties. A covenant that we are aware of is the marriage covenant. And the thing that's special about a covenant rather than any contract is that it's before God. It is a binding agreement between two parties under God's oversight. So God looks upon it. He's the one who's like the notary, right? He's the one who will sign it and say like, yes, I put my stamp on it. I'm the witness. God, as God is witness. God will see it. He will hold all accountable to keep it. And so Abram brings all these animals before the Lord. And it says he cuts them in half. And the idea was, as the two parties would walk between the two pieces of each animal, that they were saying, we are now joined together by this covenant before God to keep it. And it was quite often they would, they would eat of the meat together and they would, they would have a feast because now they're friends united by this agreement. They were un in unity over this part. And it was also... Walking through this, it was a bloody ordeal. You're saying, this is what will happen to me if I break this covenant. This is the consequence. Should I break this covenant? This is a picture of me. So it's pretty sober. It's a sobering thing to do. And we do see covenants or agreements made in other ways in scripture too, with an oath or with a stack of stones as a memorial. But turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 34, starting in verse 17, we see a great illustration of the binding nature of a covenant, because a covenant is special, an agreement made before God. Now the backstory for this is King Zedekiah, he made a covenant with the people. So the Jews, he, he told them in Jerusalem that they needed to proclaim their slaves that were Hebrews free. 
because one of the sins of Israel is that they had servants that they had kept longer than the time allotted because that was a way to pay off debt in their society. And after that seventh year, they had to be set free. Well, they weren't setting them free. And so everyone had gone through with this covenant before the king and before God that they would free their slaves. And they did it on the first day. But as time went on, they forced them to return. This is what happened. Jeremiah 34, 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty. Everyone to his brother and everyone to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to you, says the Lord, to the sword, to pestilence and to famine. And I will deliver you to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth. And I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not performed the words of the covenant, which they made before me when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of it, the princes of Judah, the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. Their dead bodies shall be meat for the birds of the heaven and the birds of the earth. So they had cut this calf in half. The people had walked be- between the pieces and they said, we're going to keep the promise that we've made to God, this covenant to release our slaves. They didn't do it. They likely had a feast that day of that heifer. And God said, you are going to be food for the birds and the beasts of the air because you've broken the covenant. And I've seen every one of you that walked through. I've seen every one And he lists these groups of people. And that is a pretty scary thing, right? Failure to keep the covenant before the Lord, it results in death. Abram cuts the the animals in two and he waits. Verse 11 says, when the vultures came down, he drove them away. Interestingly, all these animals, they are clean under the law of Moses. That would be given years later. And it's like, He drove away those birds that were coming down upon those carcasses. And it's like, if we bring God an offering, let's protect it from what defiles and what could corrupt it. It's like, it wouldn't do for Abram to offer to God what had been picked clean by buzzards, right? That vultures had picked at. Uh, And let's drive away the doubts and the worries with the truth of scripture rather than feeding them, right? When God asks us to do something, let's do it. Let's do it with our might as he did. And I like that God is the one who guards us. It says in Philippians four, six and seven, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Quite often, we can have a doubt in our mind. We, we are not praying in faith that God will do what he's promised. We may not even be, the, be obedient like Abram was to bring those animals before him. But let's be those who are vigilant, who are obedient, who, who offer God what is good. That we pray in faith. And let's pick up the passage in Genesis 15, 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge afterward. They shall come out with great possessions. 
Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Says the sun dropped below the horizon and Abram fell into a deep sleep. It's the same phrase that's used when Adam was caused to fall into a deep sleep when the rib was removed and God created Eve. Fear and darkness overwhelmed him as God spoke. And Abram's like, how will I know that I will inherit the land? And God speaks of his descendants to come. Like they're going to be afflicted for 400 years. That doesn't seem very comforting. But see, knowing God changes things. Because the God who had brought him out of Ur and would allow them to, his, the children of Israel to go into Egypt, he would bring them out with a mighty hand. He would protect them and he would birth a nation out of slavery with great possessions. And he promised him that he would go to his fathers in peace. He would not be slain like the four kings that he had slaughtered. And after four generations, God would cause Abram's descendants to return to that land for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God would use Israel as his instrument to render judgment upon the Amorites in the land. And they had 400 years where they had an opportunity to repent, to turn from sin, to choose to worship the God of heaven or continue uh, in their idolatry. Abram had security in his glorious God and let God be our fear and dread. As it says in Isaiah 8, 12 and 13, it says, do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. So they didn't need to dread 400 years. I mean, just think of it. God's operating in these massive amounts of time because he's outside of it. He's like, yeah, for 400 years, there will be affliction, but I'm going to bring them out and I'm going to bring them into this land and they will possess it. And so there was comfort in knowing God who was going to accomplish these things, who rendered righteousness to Abram. Verse 17, and it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites and the Jebusites. Now, you remember how the cutting of the covenant, the parties were to pass between the two pieces, the divided animals. Well, Abram is in this deep sleep and he sees two objects passing between the pieces. It says a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between the pieces. And those were elements essential to sacrifice. You would have the oven or the altar and the, the fire. And the implications are so important because it didn't depend upon Abram walking between the pieces. God took it upon himself completely to uphold the covenant he was making. It's like he puts his deity on the line to say, I am the Lord God and I will keep my word. I will accomplish all that I have said. And it doesn't depend upon you at all except to believe me. I'm going to do it. 
That is amazing. There was no negotiation. You know, when you have a contractual negotiation about a price, you, you haggle on that price, you change the, the, uh, the, I guess, the agreement to suit you or to protect you. There was none of that. This is God making a covenant with Abram. And Abram had the opportunity to enter into it through faith. But it was all God's doing. So awesome. God would go before the Hebrews as a pillar of fire in the day, a pillar of cloud at night. He would descend upon Sinai with darkness and thunder and lightning and earthquake, the blaring trumpets as he brought forth the covenant of law. He's also the God, the man Jesus Christ, who would establish a new covenant with his own blood, that all who believe in his Messiah, that he's risen from the grave alive, will receive eternal salvation. Our call is to receive him, to believe him, and enter into that covenant by grace. People who made a covenant and walk between those pieces, they're saying, I will be divided if I do not keep this covenant. And Jesus was the one bruised flogged, pierced, sacrificed, who laid down his life on Calvary so he could atone from our sins. He's the door through whom we enter to receive eternal life through faith in him. The rich young ruler, he comes up to Jesus and says, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He had things wrong. What must I do? Because it's not about what he does. It's about what Jesus has done. Jesus has paid the price. We enter into that covenant through faith in him. We agree to it. There's nothing we can do to earn the privilege of being called a child of God, but he gives the right to become children of God through faith in him because he imputes to us his righteousness. Now, I'd like you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 22. It's such a beautiful illustration here. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19. Because this covenant too of the gospel, the new covenant in Christ's blood is based solely upon what he has done. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19. It says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see the imagery there of the veil being torn in two, exposing the holy of holies, the place where God's presence was. And it's like through the torn flesh of Christ, we have an opportunity to enter by faith into the holy of holies to know God, to have that covenant with him, to be rendered righteous by the blood of Jesus and faith in him. A new and living way, not with the sacrifice of animals day after day, but once for all, life, eternal life through Christ. It's through him we enter and receive. It's a new living way. And we can say God is our father in truth and that we are heirs of righteousness with Abram. It's God's will that none would perish, that all would come to repentance. And so this door, the door Jesus is open to all who come to him. He will not cast them out. God looks upon believers and he says, yep, they are mine. 
He has a book of remembrance we read about. God's already cut the covenant of the gospel, sealed with the blood of Jesus, risen from the dead in glory. So will you receive Jesus? Will you walk into that covenant through faith in him? The opportunity and invitation is for you today. And if you have received Christ, I exhort you to walk in the faith of Abram, like that little Hebrew slave girl. Living in Syria, she believed God would heal her master of leprosy. She was a young daughter of faith of Abraham, a child of faith of the Most High God. He never met her. Abram didn't know that she, he didn't know her name or could recognize her in a crowd, but she was part of the promise that God had made to Abram. Living in Syria as a slave, who's now bringing people to the knowledge of the God Most High. Isn't that awesome? And we now are pulled into the picture because we've entered the covenant through Jesus Christ and faith in him. And now the descendants will be continue. Like it's a promise that continues beyond us. We're part of that promise spiritually because you see the, the stars innumerable in multitude and we are part of them. And through you and through me, more will come to know the knowledge of Jesus. There is still room in the kingdom of God. And let's proclaim his word so everyone hears. And those who are of the kingdom, let us walk worthy of the kingdom. Let us walk righteously. Let us pray in faith. Let us seek his face. Let's believe God, that God is God. That he is our shield, our exceedingly great reward. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Most High. You are awesome in your ways, in your dealings with us. That it's not us who has been divided in two, but it was Jesus who was broken. It was Jesus who was pierced so that we could be made whole. Your blood poured out so that we could be redeemed and cleansed. Cleansed of something far worse than leprosy, Lord, sin that doomed us to hell and destruction forever. You have redeemed us. You have reconciled us to yourself and given us fellowship with you that we can call you father in truth. Thank you, Lord, that we see the faint outlines of, of uh, your plan of the gospel, even in Genesis, that you were going to create of him a great nation. You were going to supply through faith in yourself uh, all the inhabitants of the citizens of heaven. Thank you, Lord, for your, just the power of the gospel. Thank you for um, the faith that you have given us. And I pray we would exercise our faith, that we would trust you, we would believe you. You would show us, Lord, when we are being unbelieving, when we are fearful, when we're not satisfied in you. And Lord, I pray that we would believe you, we would trust you, we would follow you, we would seek you. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here today. Thank you for the truth of your word and just how powerful it is. And I pray it would bear fruit in our lives now and forever in Jesus' name. Amen.